My guest this episode was a walk-on at Southern University in his junior year. He went on to be drafted by the Cardinals and later played for the Rams. Along the way, the corner turned safety accumulated 55 career interceptions. The eight-time Pro Bowler is in the Cardinals' ring of honor, and he's also in a whopping four halls of fame, including the Pro Football Hall of Fame. NFL legend Aeneas Williams. Aeneas gave me the goods on mentoring. In his 1998 book, It Takes Respect, he actually devoted an entire chapter to mentoring, and he shared a few incredible stories with me, like why Michael Irvin punched him squarely in the face, how he's never had aspirations to prove anyone wrong, and why he's so intent on honoring people, even when they're acting and behaving dishonorably. Pro Football Hall of Famer Aeneas Williams joins me on the Sports Mentoring Project. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on, John. Thanks for being here, and, and I'm glad you were able to make the time. We're going to start off with a handful of quick hitters and hoping mm -hmm. to get your take on uh, the, some of the people that impacted your life. Let's start with who your greatest mentor was. My father. And if your father were here right now, what would you say to him? Thank you. What would you say his superpower was or is? Leading by example. And what about yours? Mine would be the same thing, leading by example. Yes. Who do you count among your mentees? Who calls you a mentor? Oh, there are a number. There's one uh, gentleman guys you may not know playing in the NFL, Sean, um, Sean Wallace. Uh, there are a number of them. Uh, I can go on and on. Probably uh, Demetrius Butler, uh, Dre Bly, Dexter McLeon, uh, Corey Chavis. Uh, so and I can continue to go on and on. Yes. Is there a quality that is shared by those guys of, uh, of being a mentee? Probably the quality of uh the best comes out of mentor uh, through the respect of the mentee. So probably the quality that that each of them exhibited was the respect of me as their mentor, but also the humility, willing to listen and attempt to apply uh, some of the things that maybe I either demonstrated to them or that I'd share it with them verbally. What are the ideal qualities of a mentor? Probably one that... that um, Man, ideal qualities of a mentor. A mentor is not somebody that gives you advice. A mentor is somebody's advice you follow. So the quality of a mentor is hopefully the other way I, I define a mentor is credible success for others who've already done well what you're attempting to do. For me, uh, my wife, Trace, and I have been married over 28 years. Gil and Marilyn Bird, Gil not only mentored me as a professional uh, cornerback, but he and Marilyn allowed Trace and I to stay in their home when uh, we would go out to San Diego to train with him. That's fantastic. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to diving into a little bit more about your background and the people that you influence and those who influenced you. And I'll start at the end, which is really in many ways, your pro football hall of fame enshrinement speech, where you mm -hmm. said, begin with the end in mind and die empty. What did you mean by that? One, have a clear focus on where you want to go. We can write out where we want to go on paper. And then the details come along day by day as we get to work on it. But if the vision is not clear where I want to go, 
then any off exit or any off ramp, I could have a tendency of going and deviating from it. In college, when I walked on my junior year in college, a week before the season started, I always wanted to be a complete cornerback. So the vision I did, watching, looking at guys in the pros who played the cornerback position, I didn't find one that was necessarily complete. I found two, and I used one characteristic from each of them. The first one was Ronnie Lott. Ronnie Lott was a physical, hard-tackling uh, cornerback. And the other was uh, Frank Benefield, a shutdown bump and run corner that was in a dog pound with the Cleveland Browns. And I literally had a shirt spray painted on the back, many lot. And I would walk around Southern's campus with that name on the back. My teammates teased me. Everybody thought I was crazy. They laughed me to scorn. But what I really realized that God had taught me how to create a vision and make it practical. And whenever somebody jokingly called me mini lot, I eventually morphed into that. And when I see fans today and they come up to me, usually they say, you are a complete corner. So that's what I meant by beginning with the end of mind. Die empty simply meant I was on Southern's campus, Southern University's campus, Historical Black College University, great university. My freshman and sophomore year, and I had the ability to be a pro football Hall of Famer. If you had told me that my freshman and sophomore year, I would have thought you were crazy. I didn't get any offers. I was zero star, no offers. But I found when I gave my life to Christ, I had a purpose. And I followed the passion in my heart, which was to walk on a football team a week before the season starts. Made no sense. I was already on pace to graduate with my accounting degree in three years. So that's what I mean. Begin with the end in mind and die empty. Let's talk about that a little bit as someone who really is this ultimate underdog story, right? You walk on in the middle of your college experience, you're at Southern, it's an HBCU, right? And so recruiting isn't historically is not as strong as at those schools. You got a late start and then you end your career as a member of four halls of fame, the Cardinals Mm -hmm. ring of honor. What's the difference between that kid who was a sophomore going to his junior year and the man you are today? Well, one, I, I never had, growing up in New Orleans, never had to look outside my house for a role model, my dad and mom, my two older brothers. The difference between the kid today and the kid back then before I walked on was through this relationship with Christ, I learned the power of, of belief. In other words, if I can have a passion in my heart to do something and believe I can, and then put myself around the people who are already doing it like I did. I learned the power. The difference is between what I believed, how great others were, to now believing that I had greatness in me the entire time as well, even while I was seeing all my, a lot of my peers so much better at football. But when I got around them, even though I was so far behind them, I found the more, if I got in the right environment, my environment would change me before I change it. And those mentors, Kevin Lewis, Maurice Hurst, Kevin's two years ahead of me coming out at the same high school. Maurice, one year ahead of me, played at Southern with me, but we also went to the same high school. When I walked on, I would train with those guys. Both of those guys were scholarship athletes. 
at the cornerback position, far more talented than I was. They would take me to train with them. And even though I was so far back, I just stayed with them. I would call them up to find out when it, where they were working out. So the difference between the, the guy today is I know that greatness is possible for every human being that I see in some area of their life. And my goal is to help them actualize it and go to the grave having exhausted their potential um, because we all have it. I want to talk a little bit about the work you're doing with the NFL legend community and the work you're doing as a mentor in the spirit church. We'll get to that in a moment. But in the meantime, I want to talk about, about a book you wrote in 1998 called It Takes Respect. And you actually wrote a whole chapter on mentoring, which really makes you a big get for this podcast. So help us, uh, for those of us um, or those of my listeners who may have not read the book, what's a big takeaway from that chapter? how important it is to honor people. And with all the civil unrest, everything that we've been seeing, sometimes the confrontation with community and law enforcement. My dad taught me and my two older brothers the power of respect, which simply means honor people even when they're acting or behaving dishonorably. So he taught us how to respect people and I learned that respect is commanded and not demanded. So I remember Michael Irving, my rookie year, I caused a fumble, I punched the ball, I'll cause him to fumble the ball with the Dallas Cowboys, Michael Irving, my pro football hall of famer as well. And Michael, when they got the ball back, after we had, I created the turnover, he came off the line and punched me upside the face. Tim McDonald, who was our all pro safety at the time, I was a rookie, by the way, that year. Tim McDonald, my all-pro safety teammate, saw it, came to my rescue. I told Tim, I said, I got it. Now, Michael was known as an intimidator. Michael was known to physically attempt to abuse cornerbacks to take their will away. I share with Tim, I say, Tim, I got this. And so I knew the power was not to retaliate, but the power was to play the game with the skills and the tenacity to have competitive excellence and I knew I couldn't demand that Michael respected me, but I could command that he would respect me. Now today, when I see Michael, he jokingly bows down to me. <laughs> and, and, what it, and it's obviously tongue in cheek, but the truth is I was able to command his respect, not by retaliation and penalizing my team, but still going and concentrating on playing the game. And then by the way I played the game, I had the ability to command respect. I've been pulled over sometimes by law enforcement, may have, may have been having a bad day. It didn't matter to me. I still respected the office, even though the person may have not been having a good day or not communicating well. I did not allow their bad day to cause me to have a bad day. So when it comes down to respect, and also respect goes back to the mentor part. After I played two years, the coach that allowed me to walk on, my defensive coordinator, John, he said after we upset Grambling State University in the Bayou Classic, which is probably the biggest historical black college university game in the world, in my hometown in New Orleans in the Superdome, he said we had just upset Grambling. And in the, the newspaper article, he says Aeneas Williams is a good player but I don't think he'll ever play in the pros because at best he runs a 4640. 
that's when I learned the power of people can tell you the facts, but they can't tell you the truth all the time. The facts were I ran a 4640. The truth was I had the ability to run a 4340. So when I got back to the campus, I approached a guy by the name of Brian Thomas, going back to mentors, going back to credible success for others. Brian was the fastest guy on our football team. He's 6'3", a sub 10 flat, 100 meters, fastest guy on the track team. He was a wide receiver. I would line up 10 yards off of him. All I was an all-conference cornerback. I'd line up 10 yards off of Brian, and he'd run by me. When I got back and read that, instead of building my whole life and career to prove the coach wrong, I took it as a direction to go get the help that I needed, which was Brian Thomas is his name. I said, Brian, I went to Brian. I looked Brian in the eyes. I said, Brian, can you help me get faster? He says, Aeneas, you can run a 4-3-40. I said, what? He said, yes, a 4-3-40. I said, how? He said, by running. I said, what do I do? He said, next spring, walk on the track team. Now, this, John, this is going into my final. I've already graduated. I'm playing my third year of eligibility while in graduate school. I go back in January. He says, Aeneas, walk on the track team. And by the way, Brian is one year younger than me. That's the other important thing about mentors. They don't always have to be somebody older. He was one year, and I humbled myself. I said, Brian, what do I do? He said, walk on the track team in January. He said, why are you looking surprised? You walked on the football team and worked out pretty good. I said, oh, okay, yeah, all right, you're right. So literally, John, I got – this almost brings tears in my eyes because growing up, I was a distance guy. Everybody else was faster. And then growing up, I was taught either you have speed naturally or you don't. So Brian said, get next to me, do everything I do. And, man, when I first started, I would start off with Brian on the track. He would run, leave me, but I'd just keep going. After our workouts, I'd be on the ground trying to survive. Brian would be walking as if he had never worked out. And then one day I was on the ground looking at Brian, and my leg said to me, Aeneas, you can keep this up, but we're finished. That's what my leg said to me, right? But, John, this was January. My pro day was in April. By the end of our track season, I was the second fastest on Southern's track team. My pro day, I clocked a 4-2-8-40. And I was rated the second cornerback in the country behind Todd Light out of Notre Dame. So when I talk about law enforcement, I talk about my dad and respecting my dad. I never forget, John, respect. My dad didn't teach us that sit us. We never talked about being afraid of police. And I know people grew up in other environments. I was never talked about, we talked about black and white. We knew what everything was. Our dad held us to a standard to be the best you can be and respect others, period. Even, once again, if they're behaving in a disrespectful way. And how he did it was how he raised us. I'll never forget, I'll never forget this in the rest of my life. I was around 10 years old. I was in the backyard by myself. I was playing as, as what I would do. I was growing up. I was playing, and I, I had my own imaginary Super Bowl. And I played running back when I was younger, and I always wanted to be Larry Zonka the Hall of Fame running back with the Miami Dolphins. So I'm playing the Super Bowl. I'm, I, got, I hear the crowd noise. 
I mean, I have this whole imagery, this whole imagination. I'm literally in Tulane Stadium before the Superdome. Tulane Stadium, crowds are deafening silent. And I remember getting to the end of the game. The last play, we have to score four down, half inch of the goal. And unlike Pete Carroll, I called my own play, the running back. I'm joking with Pete, obviously, tongue in cheek. <laughs> I called the play for me to get the ball. So I'm going through the cadence, hut, and then I hear a voice from the house. Nikki, because they call me Nikki. My parents call me Nikki. Nikki. I'm like, how can my dad be calling me, John? Doesn't he know I'm playing in the Super Bowl? How could he expect to call me? So I did what any 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 wise kid would do. I called a timeout. So I ran up to the house. I ran upstairs, and him and my mom was sitting on the couch. And he says to me, they they had just finished eating. My dad says to me, go to the bathroom and bring me a warm, uh, let the water warm up, bring me a warm wet towel so we can wipe our hands. Now think about this going back to respect. This going back to respect. This has changed my life. Things that he taught us that I never, he never set us down at a blackboard. So here's what I'm thinking. Doesn't he know I already have something going on out here? Doesn't he know I'm getting ready to change the trajectory of the family with this Super Bowl win, right? And that's when I realized respect. When someone is now an authority, a boss, a parent, it didn't matter what I was doing. I literally had to now shift even my attitude, serve my dad, and then go back and doing what I was doing. That one model, John, it's probably saved my career because I learned how to be successful even with coaches that would yell, that would curse, without getting angry and saying things back that would cause people to dislike you as a player. So just mo those models, those things that he just organically did with us were game changers in my life. I think about that story and the, the way you talk about ostensibly bulletin board material people were giving you when they were criticizing you and how most professional athletes you talk to will say, that drove me. That was the right. fuel that burned inside me to prove them wrong. And you said it a little bit earlier, yet you decided consciously to not give the other person that power over you not have them control your destiny. And you really went out and you're explaining what I think is happening in many regards in the workplace. People are upskilling. They're right. adding skills. They're, at, they're learning on the job and they're improving and they're not doing it despite people. They're doing them better to themselves. Is that what you're seeing out there? That's what exactly what I'm seeing. Because the goal was never to prove people wrong. The goal is to reach your potential, right? That's the goal. Now, here's, here's one of the secrets when people do things to prove people wrong. A lot of times they don't enjoy the journey because the journey is about proving people wrong or the people around them don't enjoy the journey. So I remember some guys uh, played fear of failure or fear to 
approve people wrong, things like that. A lot of times they didn't enjoy their careers. Now, they may have been very successful. Or their teammates may have won Super Bowls, won NBA championships. But they didn't like the person. Because people with that mindset to them, everything has to be fueled to them versus there's potential on the inside of me. What do I need to do to put myself in position to exhaust this potential? So when I'm finished, I don't have regrets. When I'm finished, not only did I wait to the end of my career, I didn't wait to the end of my career to enjoy myself. I enjoyed the entire process because I had the proper focus. I want to talk about people who are around the same age when you made that decision to not let that fear uh, or, or that challenge own you to go out and fix it. And I know that you and Tony Richardson last month hosted a virtual mentoring session mm-hmm. with players right after the, the senior bowl, I believe. Mm-hmm. Tell me about what you like about that program. What I like about it is the, the NFL has done something in, in Troy Vincent, Tracy Perlman, just football operations, uh, Commissioner Goodell have done an amazing job to understand that just as I evolved, here's the, here's the, the term I think about. What Brian Thomas did for me, he taught me the power of the transference of beliefs. So what did Brian do? When I'm thinking you can't get faster, either you have speed or you don't, he looked me in my eyes and says, Aeneas, you can run a 4-3-40. He said it so convincingly, I believed it. So now when we come to the senior bowl, I said, we said in that room, I said in that room, at least, uh, Tony was a free agent. I think I actually played in the senior bowl. I know what it was like. I didn't have a good senior bowl. I was so nervous coming from a smaller school, wondering if I add up and cause Tony Dungy, it was the Kansas city staff. Uh, shout out to the late Marty Schottenheimer. He was the head coach at that time. Cause Tony Dungy was the defensive back coach. They helped me understand. And Coach Marty Schottenheimer taught me something that probably was one of the main reasons of my success. He says, if you're going to play cornerback in the National Football League, you're going to have selective amnesia. And I never forget because guys were catching pass on me in practice. And he saw that I was allowing that to carry on to the next play. So just that little statement. And then now being able to talk to those young men in the room, Tony and I, and then when, when before COVID being there, we're able to speak into their lives. I would have said to the young Aeneas while at the senior bowl, hey, you know you can compete with any of these guys. The only difference now is skill. And skills are neutral. Anybody can learn them. Talent can be different. But I can neutralize a person's talent with the proper skills. So my dad makes this statement. So here's what I would want every mentee to know. My dad says this all the time. He says, son, is not what people don't know that hurt them. It's what they do know that's not true. It wasn't true. I could compete. It's obvious the evidence is there now, right? I end up being far better than a lot of my mentors. So once again, but if I had never believed it or had not gotten an environment of these mentors, the Gil Birds, the Ronnie Lots reaching out, when I wanted to be a Hall of Famer, I wrote down on paper, I wrote down everything. So begin with the end of mind. 
I've written out my my uh, obituary. I've written out what I want people to say. When I wanted to be a Hall of Famer, I wrote it down. And then I would meet with guys like Ronnie Lott. I'd call up guys like Michael Haynes. I would go see guys like Kenny Houston because I wanted to know how they thought. And that's the power of it. I know that you spent a lot of time at the Spirit Church, and it's a church that you founded and that you're a pastor of, and you regularly conduct virtual services, sometime in full Pro Bowl regalia. You wear the jersey and you, you're, you're, you're preaching to the screen. What kind of mentorship is your congregation seeking in a pandemic that disproportionately affects people in the Black and Brown communities? Well, number one is to be educated, to be informed. That's the first thing. I'm almost sure Monday we're doing our men's locker room. Men join us from all over the city and all over the country. And I probably will have my doctor. We will be talking about how important the vaccine is. And I'm filming a PSA with the Hall of Fame and Centene because my doctor gave me a better understanding of the vaccine. And it just reminded me of when we had the polio and all of these major things that we don't even think about now. And possibly this vaccine, hopefully, will have that same impact. My parents have had both shots. They're doing well. So the first thing, as it relates to black and brown people of color, I want to use whatever influence I have to leverage it to serve the people who are possibly underserved. In other words, the goal of anybody, a Christ follower, anytime the Lord gives us an opportunity to be at the table, our responsibility is to leverage our influence at the table for those that are not there. So as it relates to the spirit church, being a Christ follower, I my part of my gifting is the ability to take the gospel, the, the scriptures, articulate it in a jovial, modern way of connecting the, the scriptures to apply that in our lives. And for people to experience that salvation wasn't to get us to heaven, but it was for Christ to put his spirit, the Holy Spirit in us, to help us live out the potential that we were created to live out. That's not the only platform you have. I know you're a regular host of the NFL Legends podcast. And yes. I caught the episode with Ezra, whose story is pretty incredible. In 2002, he came out as a gay man after retiring from the NFL and you know, here we are 20 years later, and we still don't have an active NFL player who's out. What can today's players do to make it safe and comfortable for their brothers to come out while they're playing? Well, one, we all know that the NFL is about contributing to a team. That's the first thing. The second thing is to educate yourself, to become better educated. And whatever things that may make a player currently com uncomfortable, then have a conversation with our brothers. One of the things that really came out of my conversation with Ezra was it still boils down to respect. Regardless of whatever a person chooses to, to do, it doesn't matter, right? We still are required to respect people, to respect the differences. Whether we agree or not, that has nothing to do with it. When we're working for a job and we all have a common goal, we just want our brothers to contribute in a meaningful way to help us win. Now, afterwards, if we spend time together, that's fantastic. But if we don't, there's still a level of respect. There's still a level of honor. 
there's still a level of we want the best players possible, right? Isn't that what the league is about? It's about, we're talking about 1%, 1%. And they are one that 1%, whoever they are, hey, let's get this done together. Whatever difference we have, let's have conversations so we can better understand each other. Some of it not being accepted is some of it is just understanding. Versus, okay, how I feel about something. It's different between feeling a certain way about something and then taking the time to mature to understand it. That's great perspective. And I think it's important that we continue to talk about this topic and continue to make it a safe envi- and a welcoming environment for anybody who wants to share their personal story with the world. Um, and, 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 and John, I'm sorry, it's the same thing with women. Look what we're seeing, right? Look what... Uh, Coach Bruce Aarons, look, look at the diversity of thought on his staff, not just people of color, but for, for ladies. And look, look what the league and uh, officials, right? What we're realizing is, man, we all have the ability to contribute if we, we eliminate the barriers in our minds that were either given us from someone else versus seeing, okay, Who's the best at what we're doing? Let's all get them because that's what the National Football League, the best in the world. That and also, you know, diversity can be a competitive advantage when you use it right. Having diversity of thought in the room when you're making a big decision that involves including or excluding someone, you know, having somebody in the room with a voice, a loud voice like yours or like Ezra's or somebody who's advocating for a particular underserved population is critically important. No doubt about it. And that loud voice, even when we talk about a loud voice, right? If there's a safe place in communication, and if we have a culture of communication, nobody's voice has to be loud. Because everybody's voice at the table has meaningful content, right? So I don't want anybody to have to feel they have to have a loud voice. I want all of us, whoever's at the table, to have shared interest, shared meaning, and have the best for all of us in mind when we talk, right? Because some people don't want to have to get loud. Some people don't want to. I get it, right? Personality difference. I don't want to lose that person's perspective because they're not loud. I want to create a safe place where each person can now communicate. However they feel, I, I like to say it like this, put a diamond in the center of a round table and then sit people around the table every person will see a different aspect of that diamond. And if we have a safe communication room, each person will feel confident in sharing their viewpoint, their viewpoint from where what they see. And even though everybody's viewpoint may be different, each viewpoint will be true to them. And that's what I love about that. That's a great analogy, and and it's really at the core of, I would think, the reason why, you know, a week after you were inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, you you traveled to a high school in Ferguson, Missouri, with the intention of really soothing a community that was reading from the killing of Michael Brown by white police officers. You showed up, but you did more than just preach, right? You hit the streets. What did you learn in Ferguson all those years ago? Well, one, go, go back to the power of vision. 
David Baker, the president of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, after we were inducted and announced in New York, we met with him Monday. This was his first induction class. David literally had the key characteristics of a Hall of Famer. He also had literally on a video a vision of where we were going with the Hall of Fame. And I'll never forget he said something. He says, guys, these jackets, these gold, gold jackets, we are not positioned to just memorialize you. You will do more with these gold jackets than maybe you've done in your entire career. My fellow Hall of Fame and good friend Daryl Green says, the gold jacket is a key. So with that being said, being in Ferguson and there to serve that community, serve law enforcement, serve community. The best way I can put it, John, is the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel, good news, of reconciliation. Reconciliation is literally when you see opposing people on separate sides of the street. We as Christ followers are to walk down the center of the street and see how we can reconnect them. In addition to your work in the community with the legends and with the Spirit Church, do you have any people you work with in the business community, in sports that are working, executives or people that aren't on the field? Yes, one is uh, Michael Neerdorf and um, Joyce Larkin with Centene Corporation and even a partnership that we have with the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And also just local business people, guy, um, uh, that we work with anytime we're doing outreaches and things like that. There's no hesitation for our business community to support it. There's a gentleman here by the name of, um, I think he's, uh, he's the CEO of Mercy Hospitals. He's outstanding. We've done uh, food outings before with him. So just a number of uh, people in the business community that care. Do you find that some of those same principles apply? You know, you talked a little earlier about this transferred belief and selective amnesia. I mean, you know, we all have a bad day. We all wish we didn't say something uh, sure. or we all wish we didn't say that, e send that email or we, we you know, we've got negative self-talk and replaying something that went poorly at work. Do these same principles apply to a cornerback as they do to a, CEO? And no doubt, because love overlooks insults, right? And when we love people, we already know people have, have had their own experiences. As I said, my dad told me and my two older brothers, he said, if you guys ever have to choose between me and the police, choose the police. And what he was doing was he was setting, like, in other words, you don't have to worry about law enforcement. You got to worry more about me, right? So, but everybody didn't have that, right? Everybody didn't have that same experience. Some people, have, uh, good friends of mine, great attorney in his hometown, it was horrific in terms of community and law enforcement, the side of town that he lived on. So the first thing I got to know is everybody's had different experiences and empathy is my willingness to listen and to not channel everybody's uh, story and think it's impossible to have been their story because I didn't experience it. That's the first thing. The second thing, uh, we have what's called Wisdom Wednesdays at 12 to 1. 
I and it's like a, a study where we we talk about certain things with the scriptures, and it's really about wisdom. In other words, regardless of whatever rules you have, what's the wisdom on how to carry it out? And I said today in Wisdom Wednesday, I call it. Isn't it interesting, John, how we remember more of the negative things than we do the positive things? Somebody can come on and say, John, man, you are the amazing host, man. Your podcast is outstanding. And then someone else can come say that's trash or tweeted or, and guess what, John, you would have to fight. I don't know about you. I would have to think, why didn't I remember and just rehearse what the person who affirmed it, the person who said it, this was good. Why do we have to fight to get those negative ones out of there? So now I'm aware of that. So when I start a conversation, I like to set the table to make us aware of it, that we want to focus on the shared experiences on what each of us can do today. We were not there yesterday. We can empathize and listen, but once we listen, what are we going to have, what are we going to do to have this shared opportunity to make it better now for the next generation as a result of all of us sitting at the table after we've heard everybody's story. Aeneas, you've been so generous with your time and your stories. You're a fascinating guest. I wish you continued success with the Spirit Church, the NFL Legends community, the podcast, and all the work you do with the NFL and your community. Thank you for being my guest on the Sports Mentoring Project and sending my very best to you and your family for a safe and healthy year. Thank you, John. So, so honored to be on with you. Keep up the great work, brother. Thank you, Aeneas. You're welcome.